0: Welcome to this special bonus edition of the Daily Signal podcast. I'm Richard Reinch and today we'll be talking with Chris DeMuth of the Hudson Institute about the national conservative movement that he is helping to lead. Today, I'm joined by Chris DeMuth, a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute, longtime president of the American Enterprise Institute, veteran of Republican presidential administrations, um, and who's had a very distinguished uh, career in Washington. And we're going to be talking about all things national conservatism today. Chris, I'm glad to have you on. Richard, it's great to be here with you, and uh,
1: congratulations are in store. Uh, congratulations are Due to you uh, for your distinguished career at Liberty Fund and Law and Liberty, and congratulations to the Heritage Foundation for snaring you. Uh, this is a great uh, move on their part, and uh, I know it's going to be a wonderful new association for both of you.
0: Well, Chris, thank you so much uh, for that. And of course, uh, recently in your career, uh, you have become involved with a movement known as National Conservatism, and I look forward to discussing that with you today. You've obviously had a long career in Washington working within the conservative movement and and all of its interesting elements and facets. Uh, What got you interested in National Conservatism? You've been uh, involved in their major conferences, and the last conference you were uh, chairman of the conference. So maybe talk about that.
1: I think as the 20 teens were uh, beginning, uh, I was uh, seeing that there were new problems in American society that the conservative movement was uh, not uh, addressing uh, sufficiently. In my my long career within the movement, I had seen uh, developments along the way uh, that had, had seemed to me to be adverse, that I'd argued against. Uh, For example, the centralization of the conservative movement in Washington. Um, There was a time, uh, uh, Richard, as a Hoosier, you may remember the old American Spectator in Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, the neoconservative public interest in New York City. And with the Reagan administration, everybody sort of moved to Washington. And I thought that we were losing a certain amount of uh, diversity in the movement, a little bit of attachment to localism. So, so there were always things that I'd been uh, alert to, and I thought the, the problems of having a big conservative establishment in Washington, uh, breathing the air of Washington, joining in a, a large Washington consensus, uh, was, was problematic uh, for a movement uh, that I think always has to be uh, a little bit uh, contrarian, uh, skeptical, alert to new problems, and uh, in the 2000s and especially the 2010s, I was starting to uh, worry about these things actively, and I started I started reading widely. I was also noticing the new wave of nationalist uh, sentiment. Uh, this was not this was not entirely new. Uh, I can remember. One of the things that first intrigued me about Ronald Reagan back in 79 and 1980 is that he spoke in the language of patriotism, uh, which had not been something that I had uh, seen uh, during my my adult uh, life. You would have had to go back to Roosevelt, Coolidge, you know, much earlier uh, to uh, see such strong uh, patriotism. Uh, But I was seeing uh, more and more of it. And uh, I, in my reading, I came upon a book by a man who's now one of my national conservatism uh, colleagues, Yoram Hazoni, a distinguished Bible scholar. I had had him uh, give uh, talks at AEI back when I was uh, leading that institution in the '90s, early uh, 2000s. Uh, uh, some of his uh, work on biblical scholarship. He wrote a big book on Israel. Uh, So I had known uh, Yoram, and he had published a new book on the virtue of nationalism. And I was struck that many people thought that that was an audacious idea, that there should actually be virtues in nationalism. And I read the book, and I was very impressed. I wrote a review essay on it, and uh, it was a uh, it was a positive review, uh, and so Yoram and I uh, rekindled our own fr- our old friendship, and we started working together. He was putting together these initial conferences in Europe and in the United States of the National Conservatism movement, and he and his uh, colleagues uh, were highly practiced intellectuals and uh, very, uh, very accomplished as thinkers, but they'd never put on a big conference before. Well, I'd spent 25 years putting on conferences. And so I, I, I worked with them on some of the backstage logistics and organizational aspects of these conferences. Uh, but at the same time, I was falling more and more uh, into their uh, views of the problems we were facing and the virtues of national conservatism uh, as a new movement that was intending to refresh the conservatisms that I had grown up with, libertarianism, old-fashioned uh, national review conservatism, uh, the law and economics movement, all of these uh, older movements that I had been uh, part of. I came to believe very strongly in the potential to refresh uh, and bring these conservatisms uh, up to date uh, for a new set of problems, and also to interpret and apply uh, this new sense of nationalist spirit that was uh, sweeping the United States and Europe, and that came abruptly to the forefront in 2016 with the Brexit vote. In the UK and the uh, Trump election in the United States,
0: I think you know that there's a lot of questions I want to want to get to coming out of your response there. In preparing for this interview, Chris, I uh, took the uh, opportunity to reread some chapters from George Nash's great book, "The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America Since 1945," and. The, the groupings that he discusses uh, coming out of the 1940s and 1950s, the traditionalists, by which he includes thinkers like Robert Nisbet, uh, Russell Kirk, uh, Eric Vogel and Leo Strauss, isn't that a group? The Libertarians, Frank Chodorov, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, uh, the anti-communist writers, James Burnham, Whitaker Chambers, oh, and then the 1960s come. And you know the way Nash writes about it within conservatism, there's a quest for philosophical order. You know they've broken through; they're no longer giving off irritable mental gestures, as uh, one person characterized it. But there's something substantial here. The 1960s happen, and you know there's you know the major push is fusionism uh, that seems to largely work. I don't know if it theoretically works, but it seems to work practically politically. Uh, with Frank Meyer's uh, vision in his in 1964 book, In Defense of Freedom. And then we have sort of the reaction to the 60s and the neoconservatives, to my mind, really emerge, uh, particularly the failure of progressive policies in the great, in the great society and in, or the, the, the failure of those policies in, in the urban city. And then the religious right is another group that emerges in the 1980s as a part of, you know, the fallout, uh, the cultural fallout from what had happened in the 1960s. You know, I I say all that, I mention all those groupings, because American conservatism is obviously contested. It's a raucous conversation at times, uh, has been, still is. You know, there is no single unifying thing that is American conservatism, where does national conservatism fit in? And can you give us something we can latch on to to think about its argument?
1: Let me give you two. There may be more uh, aspects uh, that I think are that – are, that are departures. Uh, among, I should say, national conservatives, there's a tendency to emphasize our differences from the past. My own view is that the continuities from these earlier movements – Uh, are uh, stronger uh, than uh, uh, many national conservatives uh, recognize. We are drawing from, you know, different strands uh, from the past, but there certainly are uh, differences. One in the international uh, sphere, the emphasis on the nation state and the opposition to international organizations and to the emergence of global corporations uh, that uh, often uh, have their headquarters. In fact, most of the great ones have their headquarters in the United States, but obviously don't really regard themselves as American. They regard themselves as citizens of the world. Uh, They are, in some respects, much more willing to work closely Uh, with the government of China than with the government of the United States, which actually defends the territory on which they live. Certainly there were isolationist strands in the old conservatism, the Robert Taft conservatism of the early 1950s, but it became increasingly uh, internationalist. So I think that there is a turn away from internationalism. That can be overstated. There are many respects in which national conservatives understand uh, the importance of of international norms and institutions, but I think that that is a a pretty sharp change. The the sharper change is the opposition to what I would call the extremes of uh, individual liberalism, liberalism conceived as placing the liberty of the individual first, uh, something that trumps all other uh, considerations. For example, the uh, Frank Meyer fusionism actually placed the liberty of the individual uh, above all other things, uh, I believe is a matter of a fair dispute. You can find it in the text. Uh, you can find ways that he acknowledged some qualifications. But whether or not this was part of of one or the other earlier strand of conservatism. It is certainly something that national conservatives today uh, recognize as extreme and dire threats to social well-being, that uh, the exaltation of the individual Uh, not necessarily, I should say, attached to uh, community, to religion, family, to any norms other than the norms that each individual can dream up for himself or herself in their own self-created conception of the universe. We national conservatives believe uh, that these extremes are behind an enormous amount of the uh, mischief in modern politics, which has actually gone far beyond uh, mischief uh, to be really uh, sources of uh, enormous uh, social upheaval and threats uh, to the fabric of society.
0: Thinking about your answer, and in particular, the questions you raise about Frank Meyer's fusionism, what work is the term national? doing a national conservatism. And when I ask you that, I'm thinking about, you know, sort of the full uh, extent of American constitutionalism, that it, it also encompasses federalism and local rule and its concern about the centralization of power. Do national conservatives view federalism as an integral part of policy or is that something that's largely pushed to the side?
1: No, I, I would say that the the nationalism of the national conservatives is certainly in the American context, a vast continental nation, highly heterogeneous, huge amounts of variation uh, from region to region, 330 million inhabitants. Our nationalism in the American context is a layered nationalism. Uh, It is built of many uh, subordinate loyalties, uh, most of which will be stronger loyalties to family, to faith for religious people, to local community, to occupation, to avocation. And uh, I believe that federalism, localism, is a uh, it is an intrinsic part of the nationalism uh, that uh, that we subscribe to. Localism would take a different form, in nations such as, uh, say, uh, France or uh, the U.K. or Hungary, much smaller nations which have different structures and and in smaller nations the the nature of uh, localism will be very very uh, different. Uh, probably the closest uh, to the United States uh, would be Germany, which has a, a huge tradition of localism, which the new Nationalists in uh, Germany very much subscribe to and regard it as a strong component, as I would in the United States, of what makes up our successful nation.
0: I wanted to ask you a question as well. uh, Thinking deeply about fusionism here, and then maybe we can talk uh, about national conservatives, maybe more policy level as well. Meyer, from my read, he says the end of the end of the political realm. Is freedom. Uh, it can't be virtue. He also says, though, he's trying to um, conjugate uh, the American founding uh, in the 20th century, and that would, of course, mean a lot of state and local decisions being made uh, at the level of virtue. But the federal government, in in that regard, is is not necessarily where it's where it should be focusing. But he also is very clear, Jewish Christian biblical anthropology should be the standard of our freedom of our responsibility and it's you know, the way we should think about why government should be limited is that out of or, or out of step with, with how you would see a national conservatism or is something because i think a lot of times when i hear fusionism being criticized what i really hear is libertarian ideology of the last 20 years, which I would criticize that as well. And it's sort of exaltation of the autonomous individual and freedom not really being rooted in anything larger than the individual. I I would accept those criticisms, but I don't think that's what Frank Meyer was trying to articulate.
1: I think that there's at at a minimum national conservatives – and there there are a lot of disagreements within national conservatism, and, and uh, as I have often said, that's a strength, not a weakness, because we're dealing with some new and very, very dire threats and problems and a lot of confusion, and there's going to be a lot of argument. We're going to be looking to the past both for help and looking at the past for mistakes, wrong turns that were made. I actually think that you can argue Frank Meyer uh, either way. Uh, there's no question that he put individual liberty at the, the pinnacle. On the other hand, he often, well, first of all, like everybody back in those days, he was operating in a world where whether one was religious or irreligious. Whether one was a strong family man or not, they all were working in a world where marriage was the norm. Divorce, illegitimacy was frowned upon. A large majority of the population in the United States was religious, believing, practicing. And they all recognized at one level or another, even those who were strong individualists, atheists, and so forth, they recognized that there was this enormous social capital uh, that, to some extent, they benefited from living in this world. Now, you can find Frank referring to the decline of religion, the decline of so forth uh, somewhat. So you can say, well, he recognized that, and he still wanted to make individual liberty tops as far as government was concerned, certainly at the national level and on questions of ethics and morality, wanted to duke it out in private uh, society. On the other hand, many, many uh, times, over and over, when he refers to the individual, he refers to the dignity of the individual. This does not sound to me uh, like somebody who would embrace uh, the levels of uh, uh, organized devotion to uh, pornography that we have today. It doesn't sound to me like somebody whose idea of the individual is the individual who gets to choose his, her, or its sex at will, and that because the individual is supreme, everybody else in society is obliged to recognize and cooperate with that gender choice as it may admit itself today. I think if we asked Frank those things, he—I mean—he wouldn't—he wouldn't even know—he wouldn't even know how to discuss those matters. Now you're going to give me some quote where maybe he begins to, but I do think it was a different world. But I will—I will grant this to those who say Meyer uh, that fusionism was a wrong turn. There's no question that he wanted to put individual liberty first that he was worried about the infusion of issues of morality into the, uh, into the public square, and that as, um, as, as it is often the case that an intellectual will come up with a powerful proposition that is introduced into one context, and to some extent that he doesn't even recognize, assumes the existence of that context— And then the idea ends up destroying the context. It ends up being actually insidious against things that the uh, intellectual had not thought of. Richard, if if I can borrow from another conversation you and I have had, John Maynard Keynes was a budget balancer. He introduced the idea of deficit spending in recessions. Uh, as somebody who simply will as- assumed, well, then of course, when the recession's over, we'll pay back the borrowing. We'll retire the borrowing. He just that was part of the world that he lived in. Everybody assumed that that was true. But his idea, once it got out there, and once people with their own designs began to make use of it, completely destroyed the balanced budget principle that he had assumed as a basis for his arguments. And I think that one can argue, and I'm trying to be, uh, I, I, I always want to want to take uh, the work of a great intellectual uh, and try to, to understand it as opposed to simply condemn it, somebody made a horrible mistake. It, is, it, is, it certainly seems to me that Frank gave liberty a very large, dominant role that came to have practical consequences that I believe he could not have foreseen, but whether or not he could have, we are where we are today. And I, I think we have to say that one thing he was right about is that introducing questions of morality as central matters in the public square has turned out to very to be very problematical for our politics. Now, national conservatives, do not want to say. Well, therefore, let's take moral issues out of the public square. We recognize that they are there, uh, that the secular woke progressivism is of today, is at its base a moral movement, a terribly, terribly wrong, deluded and destructive one. But these issues are out there, and so simply saying, uh, let's let's just. Let's hold seminars. Let's argue about these things, and even in many cases, let's argue ab- about them at the local level and keep them out of national politics. It's just not realistic, given the problems that we are dealing with today.
0: Well, the so many of these um, problems that we're dealing with, you know, it's interesting, and I, and I don't want to keep going on, on about fusionism. I, I think Meyer. I think the the idea being, um, what do you do? If our intellectual uh, class or claritycy in many respects abolishes reason or abolishes the idea that there is a nature and and there's just sort of will I mean that's really what's at the heart of the transgender movement. Uh, we are just will uh, and we aren't we're even separated from our bodies we can act upon those as we choose without any regard to logic or a deeper foundation for thinking about what we should do. Uh, And I think Myers fusionism would struggle to understand that. But I think also what remains true is the difficulties of power and the limits of power and what you can, in in fact, do. And of course, the fact that many of these issues we could deal with on a local level, they are national level issues, as you say, but that's also a result of the deformation of our politics, of our constitutional order, how to set things right. Uh, The national conservatives have had two uh, national level conferences. I've been at, I've been involved in both. Uh, I spoke at the recent one on virtue in the market. I appealed to Roger Scruton on the nation and Wilhelm Rupka on, on virtue in the market. In my talk, David Brooks was there. He wrote a piece in the Atlantic. A lot of people have discussed, uh, and which, you know, he didn't, I, I don't think he said he heard irritable mental gestures. He said he heard anger. Uh, and he heard people, you know, expressing an America that he doesn't recognize. I was at the conference. Um, I didn't necessarily experience that. And, and he said he heard no notes of grace. He should have been at our panel. We had uh, your Hudson colleague, Diana Fergot Roth, uh, my Heritage colleague, Jay Richards. I, I thought there were notes of grace in that panel. So he, maybe he went to the wrong panels. What did you think of his criticism of that conference? I I had a poor opinion of that
1: essay and my strongest reactions were the, the two that you have made. It's somewhat different. I didn't hear a lot of anger, but I heard some anger. And I would say to that, as Aristotle said, failure to anger, when anger is called for justified, is foolish is a defect of, uh, of character. And I believe that there is a lot uh, to be uh, angry about in, uh, in America today. Uh, I am angry, uh, and uh, one of my heroes uh, that I try not to let the, the national conservatives know about from my youth was Albert J. Nock. Uh, and uh, Nock once wrote, I am a little bit angry all the time. Um, and as somebody who's lived in Washington for 50 years, I would say that I have been a little bit angry all the time. But I think that the uh, if you look at uh, the misery uh, at uh, our essentially open southern border, if you look at 1,000 murders in Chicago last year, 800 of them, uh, uh, black on black with black uh, victims, uh, if you look... At what is happening to storekeepers in cities where shopkeeping has been uh, legalized. There's a lot there's a lot to be angry about today, and so I think that that's fine. I did not think that the anger was, uh, was overwrought, was vicious. I found it to be a justified anger. Uh, and there was a lot that was uh, I think it's understandable at this point in our movement and at a conference held in the fall of 2021 that there was a lot of dismay at what is going on around us. But there was also, uh, first of all, uh, there was a lot of grace. There was a lot of compassion. Uh, There was a lot of uh, understanding of the variety of of views within our movement and uh, trying to come to grips uh, with uh, the larger political developments I would say uh, that in the talk that I gave, in the talk that you gave, in many, many others that I heard, there was a great deal of grace. Now, one always hesitates to claim grace uh, for oneself. But I thought that the idea that this was an angry, a scary, a frightening bunch of people uh, who had uh, no grace or gracefulness and uh, should uh, raise fear in the hearts of any uh, uh, moderate, balanced uh, person. I thought that that was a, a false characterization, and I was frankly uh, uh, surprised uh, because I, I have several friends, including some people that I brought down there who are not uh, particularly, uh, who, who are uh, uh, skeptical Uh, or more than skeptical, of many aspects of national conservatism, who found it to be an intellectually bracing, invigorating time. Disagreements uh, that they found, you know, very well uh, ventilated, original arguments that had not occurred to them before. Uh, So I... I've I've said what I said maybe twice over in answering your question.
0: Uh, thinking about you know that um, I, I will say this: being involved in two of the National Conservatism conferences, I don't consider myself a national conservative, but I've always noticed a really intense energy at those conferences. People very much want to be at the panels; they want to participate in Q and I've appreciated that, and you know, there's you can obviously tell uh, that there's there's something going on, and um, uh, I, I've enjoyed being involved and had my own sharpening, uh, my own thinking uh, sharpened. So to me, that the, those who would criticize those conferences have, at that level, probably have their own agenda going on. Uh, much sharper criticisms uh, made also by other people.
1: And I, and, and I should say, I should say, Richard, th- this movement—it's not—it's not a union shop. It's—it's it's not a closed shop, uh, and it's not just that we tried to get some you know really good liberals uh to be among be among us but we're really trying to draw upon many of the different strands today some some of which i would say richard your views which you've you know brought out with enormous clarity in that wonderful piece you had in uh national affairs a few years ago and your contributions at our conferences that's that's really we're, we're, tr- we're trying to learn, and we do have some very sharp arguments uh, among ourselves, but I, I believe, and as we've been trying to organize these conferences, we're trying to have hard—we recognize that there are hard debates, and we think that they are manageable, and that is to say, more than manageable, that they are productive debates. There are times when debates can be uh, destructive Every once in a while, I see, you know, some formulation kind of veering off uh, in that uh, direction. Uh, but we have tried to, to keep the debates, even though they are sometimes high concept intellectual debates, to try to keep them anchored in, in practicality and to thinking through what we as a movement might do to not only arrest current developments— But as I said in my talk, going beyond uh, simply prudentially slowing down the rate of change to actually uh, reversing uh, several bad developments in American politics and culture of the past 20 years. But it is those actual changes as opposed to uh, scoring sharp and brilliant uh, debaters' points in internal uh, fisticuffs that we are aiming for.
0: Okay. I want to ask you about one group that many associate with national conservatism. Uh, I'll call them the post-liberal thinkers. Patrick Deneen, Gladden Pappen, Adrian Vermeule, brilliant thinker at Harvard Law School. I, I disagree with him, but I always try to engage everything he writes. And I, as I read them, they are sharply critical of the American founding they seem very critical of American institutions, uh, even basic constitutional concepts in the case of Adrian Vermeule, separation of powers. Uh, he actually wants the administrative state to be enlarged and to have more power. Are they a part of the national conservative movement or sort of a group that has some sort of contribution to make, but you guys just don't know what that is? I
1: would say that whether they're national conservatives, you'd have to ask them and they could give you an answer. Just to take two names that you've mentioned, Patrick Denine uh, has been a valuable part of uh, of our conferences, and uh, Adrian Vermeule has not. And uh, I I also see a very sharp uh, difference in their uh, in their views, and uh, I would say that uh, Professor Vermeule's ideas about Catholic integralism and uh, sort of weaponizing. The uh, national American uh, Washington-based uh, executive state on behalf behalf of moral and especially Catholic uh, moral values. I've actually not heard any of that in uh, any of the conversations we've had, either in private or in public, uh, at our national conservative um, conferences. I myself have argued against it in print and. Um, so, so, I, so I would say that I certainly disagree with him. Uh, I take a very different view of Patrick. Again, uh, he is saying that there were flaws at the beginning. Uh, this is a little like talking about uh, uh, 50s, 60s uh, uh, fusionism, uh, that there were flaws at the beginning. I have learned a lot reading his work and reading criticisms of his work. I happen to know a lot about uh, the founding. And in my view, uh, part of its, the, the explanation for its success is that, like national conservatism today, it had some very, very strong tensions uh, within it. And uh, I think that the aspects that uh, Deneen uh, has uh, pulled out and I think you're going to see some more of that in an upcoming book uh, by Yoram uh, Hazoni, uh, are very uh, true and important. I think that the 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 view of the American founding is essentially both Lockean and traditionalist. It wasn't one or the other. Given uh, the use uh, that Lockeanism uh, had in subsequent history so that it's now part of our uh, traditions, For example, in the Gettysburg Address, uh, I, I see it there, but uh, there was an enormous role for faith uh, that many of the authors of the Declaration and Constitution, the most prominent ones, uh, were deists uh, of one variety or another, I think does not gainsay uh, the importance of full-strength religion, including Catholic religion in Maryland as part of the formation of the Republic. So let me say that when we turn to uh, practical matters, I do not hear uh, in any of our councils anybody arguing for the turning over the American nation uh, to the Pope or anything like that. Uh, I, I sometimes see allegations of that by people who were trying to, uh, to marginalize us. Uh, but when I listen to uh, patrick Dedean, i hear him say some good things about the american founding and when i hear him talk about things that he would like to see happen in the united states i find myself four square on almost all of it and i i wonder and i'm i wonder what you would say uh, when we got down to particulars let's talk about a range of things um there is now a strong movement In New York State to say that Catholic, uh, to essentially ban Catholic adoption charities. Catholic adoption charities will place a child of any religion or no religion into a household of any religion or no religion, but they have two requirements for the household. The first is that it be headed by a married couple And secondly, that the couple be male and female. And for those reasons, there is a movement to say that this is unjust uh, discrimination. It has no part of the fabric of life in New York State, and that they should not be permitted to place any of their children into any of the households that meet their criteria. Another movement in New York State wants to require all private schools, including religious schools— to abide by the state-established curricular requirements for public schools, so that would uh, yeshivas would go away the next day. There would be no more yeshivas. So I am in favor of resisting those movements. I am in favor of uh, I'm in favor of the state of Maine being required not to discriminate against religious schools in uh, the provision of, you know it. Maine, like Vermont, it's got a lot of rural areas and there are many uh, counties uh, where there are no public schools. So there's actually this long tradition, as in many rural areas, of what today we would call, you know, vouchers or school choice. Um, And it's just sort of building out the uh, education establishment uh, where the state cannot have schools everywhere. And uh, Maine says uh, that they cannot uh, give money to uh, Catholic schools Uh, but only secular schools. I think that that's wrong. Uh, I've got a position on that. The Supreme Court's going to make a decision. Uh, And uh, so, on all of those matters, that is permitting uh, a larger role for religion in the public squares. Now, uh, there are many national conservatives who want to bring prayer back into the public schools, or at least not to say that it is banned at the federal level. Um, If I could remove the Supreme Court's ban, I would do that, uh, but I would leave it to local sensibilities, uh, very much as I would on the question of censorship. If I were a school board member, uh, say, where I live in Northern Virginia, I think I would be opposed to prayer in school because we're such a heterogeneous uh, world here that the prayer would just be mush, and uh, I don't think it would add very much. Uh, There are many communities in America where if I were on the school board, I would be in favor of prayer in schools. So people will take different positions on that. And finally, there are some uh, national conservatives who are now pushing on the idea of restoring the Sabbath. And because we regard ourselves as uh, the heralds of a, a new working-class Republican Party, uh, we can remind ourselves that uh, Sunday closing laws were uh, a cooperative enterprise of religious organizations, churches, uh, and uh, earlier embodiments of the union movement. So that is a push. How far that is going to go Um uh, I don't know. It does not offend my sensibilities uh, that we would have Sunday closing laws. I don't. Be, I think that we were not in in at risk of becoming a a, a theocracy uh, when we had Sunday closing laws for long portions of our history. So I think the act he, that's the span that we have of the actual uh, practical uh, debates, uh, which is. To move against this strong progressive uh, initiative to further isolate and destroy uh, religious practice and belief, which is evident all around us. And then, secondly, to make the public square more comfortable uh, for people of uh, religious faith. Uh, and I think, in particular, when it comes to the education of children, but also there there can be little things. I was struck here in Virginia. Uh, we had the inauguration of a new governor, lieutenant governor, and uh, attorney general last week. It was a surprising election. And at the end of the inauguration ceremonies, uh, these three and their spouses joined hands, and the governor led them in prayer. I think I can imagine that's happening 50 years ago, uh, I, I I don't remember seeing that uh, at least as far north as uh, as Virginia uh, any time recently, and I would say to somebody that's made uncomfortable uh, by that, well, you know, religious people have to learn to live. Uh, in a society where there are lots and lots of people that do not share their faith. And you too, Buster, on the other hand, have to learn to live in a society where there are a lot of people of serious religious faith. And that's what it means to be an effective society in a nation such as America.
0: So as I listen to you, Chris, talk about these situations, one of the things that comes to mind is your back's against the wall. Your back's against the wall. You've got no other choice than to come out and start reemphasizing certain moral norms if they are going to make it impossible to have distinctive religious education in various blue states like New York uh, or Vermont. Maine surprises me. But in those places, yeah, you have you have no choice but to come out with strong uh, moral arguments in defense of religious education, and of course, I assume next would be trying to limit what happens in the homeschooling world. But of course, the arguments, those arguments, go very deep in American constitutional history and have um, footing in the Supreme Court and some of its opinions as well. And also, as I hear you talk. And, and I don't think, as I think about say, that situation in New York, which has happened in b- various blue cities, various states... I think, you know, almost every element of conservatism for various reasons would come out in support of defending those schools. Even, you know, say the, the libertarians for, for for reasons of just plurality and choice. And I, you know, I would come at it from, I think, religious education is a positive good that must be defended in our law. It must be something that parents can choose because what it has to offer is actually good for the souls of those who go through it. Also, as I'm listening to you, I am I'm, I'm. it's just this question in my mind what the national is doing, because these are a lot of things happening at the state and local level that require a vigorous moral response. But a moral response conservatism in America has always been capable of. Perhaps it uh, retreated from that in recent decades, but it's always been there and been a part of conservatism. And so I think that reignition of it is good. And I, as I hear you, I'm thinking of another name, Wilmore Kendall, that comes to mind, who would emphasize we are a republic of deliberation. And what we actually need is a much more engaged deliberation. And, he, you know, he taught, you know, the school board was key, uh, was ground zero of this deliberation. Why? Because education is at the center of the republic and what type of a republic we're going to have. And deliberation at the school board level should be robust and is inherently going to be charged with moral norms because you're dealing with the souls of the next generation. All of that being said, I, and I don't really disagree with a lot of the policies you put forward. Sunday closing laws, I wouldn't want that to be nationally dictated, but at, at various states and localities, I can I can easily see that, and and would not be necessarily uncomfortable with that happening where I lived. But you know, again, that and that but that, of course, is a recovery of the old American citizenship, which has retreated. Uh, and, the, and the American citizenship of, of people actually knowing that their choices matter and are not going to be sucked away from them by either the judiciary, the administrative state or federal government power. So as I'm hearing you, what I'm hearing is what national conservatives are about is a really tough moral conservatism, uh, to which I say, yes, we probably need that right now.
1: I, I think that they all uh, need defending. And I would hope that people who are not as attached to the traditional family, traditional religion, you know, I think that, I think that society requires all sorts of people. And, uh, you know, if you look at some of the greatest uh, thinkers, uh, scientists, poets, authors of one kind or another, a lot of them were rebels, and so, you know, I'm for maintaining a lot of room for uh, rebels, but effective statecraft uh, calls for moving port and starboard to keep, uh, to keep the ship on a steady course. And we've gone far too far uh, in, in one direction. And I think you've, in, in citing uh, Wilmore Kendall, this matter of deliberation is to me key And I think, in a sense, we're kind of creating a model within our own councils of national conservatism of what serious deliberation looks like. It's true that it's the more elevated kind of deliberation of ideas uh, uh, rather than uh, that of interests. But it is certainly true that this elevation of uh, the autonomous, self-defining individual, especially in the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, has taken one after another matter out of deliberation, and that Congress is handing over many, many great and momentous issues to specialized administrative agencies, where our laws are made by agencies that don't give a damn about anything but environmental quality, or women's rights, or automobile fuel economy so so that none of these laws really reflect the kind of uh, deliberation that we require on we, that we all require if we are going to uh, respect the laws which we will frequently find ourselves uh, disagreeing with if I, if I could offer one quick example, the um, Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court, holding uh, that gay marriage was constitutionally uh, guaranteed, I myself am pro gay marriage. There was a important shift in political opinion, as reflected in the views of the legislatures around the country on the subject. If there, you know, as recently as the beginning of the Obama administration. There was very, very strong opposition to to gay marriage, including by President Obama, many liberal Democrats. Um, I think as people started to realize, and there were some writers, but you know, there was a lot of examples that people saw in their own lives, that there were a lot of these gay couples that we kind of we kind of knew them. They really wanted to get married. and some of us thought, well, you know, the marriage uh, institution. Uh, you could certainly use some new recruits, and uh, these people seem really serious about it. But in the deliberations, and I think the state of Utah uh, was key here in proving gay marriage, but also making it clear that that did not mean that a gay couple getting married got to force a baker or a photographer to celebrate their wedding. Once the Supreme Court ousted, local deliberation there was no room for those kinds of perfectly practical reasonable compromises and now it comes down to whether when a baker is baking a cake is that is that uh, is that speech is it religion what if what if what if he's a what if he's a mute atheist does he still get to not make the cake and let the person across the street make the cake for a gay wedding when we put these things into these very abstract categories that the courts work through, when we approve of delegation of large amounts of the lawmaking in our society to specialized agencies, we're turning, th- we're removing things from deliberation that involves not just fancy, global, smart articulate, highly educated people that love to work the agencies uh, and the courts and that almost unfailingly have left progressive progressive values, uh, but also involve lots and lots of other people that actually constitutionally are their equals as citizens and who have been cut out of things. And what I really hope for all of the people in the conservative world that are skeptical of the national conservatives and of the progressives that regard us as a threat to uh, America and, as they, as they would put it, a threat to uh, democracy. I hope that at some point they would see some virtue in actually having a representative assembly argue about some of these things and come to a decision that they would accept and not try to say, no, this is a matter of right. This is not a matter uh, where we can tolerate any disagreements in society. If we don't arrive at a point, which is, I think, a central point uh, for many, many national conservatives, uh, that we get a large number of very smart, affluent, highly educated people on board with the concept that we are a government of representative law that takes into account a wide variety of views. Um, As for myself, I've got strong views and I'm willing to live with laws that are less, 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 maybe way less than 100% of mine. And I'm waiting for people on the other side to join me.
0: Well, you know, and maybe we can close on economics. I just want to make a point. I I know you're noticing this. I think we all are that the shift in populations uh, in America, this sort of continued movement away from blue states, states that have had a tremendous impact. In American economic life in the 20th century, states like California, uh, New York, Illinois, people leaving blue cities, young people uh, leaving blue cities for places that are more affordable, perhaps have more job opportunities. This, to my mind, is sort of people trying to recover a competitive federalism, deliberative framework, and find places they want to live that are congenial to the lives they want to live, even as we have this incredibly powerful government that you know, what does what or federal government that wants to try and prohibit that or not prohibit it, but limit that competitive framework from happening. I'll just say it is happening and it's going to be the task of conservatism in those states to defend that, to defend their policy, philosophical approach as People move in, but for strange reasons, might bring in their blue state politics, uh, things like that. And also to protect it at the national level, which is our mutual friend Michael Grava has noted the federal government in the 20th century was everywhere about abolishing the competitive federalist framework. So this is another challenge for conservatism going forward. On economics, one of your leading thinkers is Orrin Cass. Uh, He's very clear, large scale industrial policy in favor of distributing economic opportunity back to manufacturing workers, reshoring jobs that were sent overseas. Uh, there's also talk of reviving private sector labor unionism, uh, Senator Marco Rubio even wanting to see a Amazon uh, warehouse distribution center in Atlanta unionized, and wage subsidies as well, things like that. Is that a distinctive contribution of national conservatism, sort of worker power, and even using governments to do it? It certainly is.
1: I'm a little bit, uh, and if we, if we look at the Orencast Cass program, uh, I agree with some of it. I disagree with some of it. Uh, I think that these are important arguments uh, to make. Donald Trump came in and won the presidency uh, by uh, calling attention to very miseries. I might even say that it would be graceful it would, it would show some grace to acknowledge the fact that a lot of Americans uh, in the heartland uh, have been suffering uh, without getting much attention out of uh, Washington. So th- there's some attention there. I, I believe that his calling attention to the vast imbalance in tariffs and trade policies between America and other nations, especially uh, China, Uh, was a great uh, uh, contribution, Uh, but I I have to notice that for all of the changes that were made uh, in uh, his administration, a lot of these problems uh, still persist. And Oren Kass and his group uh, are, uh, I would say, leading the effort to try to think through exactly what we do about it. In the old days, I used to say I was a free trader and if America is losing its manufacturing edge, what we need is some good job training programs. Well, that was, that was pretty weak rhetoric on my thinking, because if somebody would followed up and said, well, what do you think about government job training programs? I would have said, they're a joke. You know, I've looked at a lot of these programs, and the government doesn't has no idea how to train people for anything, and it doesn't even know what to train them for. So I was trying to find a way to make myself comfortable uh, with my uh, strong free trade uh, sentiments. The idea of wage subsidies uh, has a, a long tradition, uh, mostly on the left, uh, but there are many people on the right that have said. Uh, that they are greatly superior to the to the minimum wage, and I am for working on these matters. I believe that the time is coming uh, when we're going to be in be in a position that I would call post Trump national conservatism, and we've been talking a lot about um, uh, having become a working class party. Uh, and about the what we used to call the Reagan Democrats, and now they're the Trump Republicans. Uh, we've made uh, substantial headway uh, with uh, Latino Americans, and we're starting to make headway, which I think the critical race theory movement has actually accelerated, of African Americans moving in our direction. Well, the time is going to come when we're going to have to make good on what we've been saying in terms of rhetoric. I hope that we will come up with something uh, that is better than the Great Society programs, uh, that is more uh, economically informed and, and more effective, and, and one that recognizes uh, the very profound changes that have been made in, uh, in private markets and tries to uh, harness markets. I think markets need uh, confining and uh, discipline and turning back uh, in some cases, especially when it comes to cultural destruction. But the market is still very, very powerful. And I would say that one of the two or three huge and exciting challenges for national conservatism is to make good on the pledge uh, that's sort of implicit in what we've done so far to actually come through with policies that make a difference to average folks have not been part of the conservative coalition until recently.
0: Chris DeMuth, this has been a great conversation. Our conversations and debates on these matters will go forward. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Richard, thank you very much for having me and congratulations on this new
1: venue uh, that you have created. All the best.
0: And that'll do it for today's special bonus edition. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you all Monday.